so much. Thank you for the opportunity to be here to open up your word together. We just pray that you fill us with your spirit. Help us to open our hearts up to you even as we open up your word to us. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you know me, you know I, I, I seldom do things without having some degree of purpose. Thus, the Kringle beard is growing and will be trimmed down in a week and a day. Um, and the Bears are champions, okay? Just deal with the shirt, man. I don't know if you realize this, but 90 years ago today, the Chicago Bears won the, the very first NFL playoff championship. The first one, and other since, shush. So, 90 years ago. See, that was the very first one, because prior to that, they didn't feel like they needed a playoff. It was pretty simple. You just, at the end of the season, you figure out which team had the best record, and they win. That's, that's the overall winner. And if any two teams tied, you just look and see, did they ever play each other during the season? If so, who won that? And you'll figure that out. Easy. Well, both the Chicago Bears in 1932 and the Portsmouth Spartans. You remember the Portsmouth Spartans. You had the, oh, yeah. Yeah, you had the helmet when you were a kid, didn't you? Well, the Portsmouth Spartans never really did much of anything. They ended up moving to uh, Detroit and started calling themselves the Lions. Anyway, um, so nothing. Anyway, so both the Portsmouth Spartans and the Chicago Bears had the same record, 6-1, and one, uh, at the end of the season. It was a shorter season. Had, had the same record at the end of the season. And you couldn't go back to see who won when they played each other, because they played each other twice, and it was 13-13 and 7-7. They tied both games that they played. So you're like, well, what do you do? You do a do-over. You do a playoff game, which nobody had ever done before. But that's okay. It'll be fun. It'll be great. Green Bay Packers were, by the way, third. Anyway, point is... Oh, let it go. Point is, the problem is, a playoff game at the end of the season happens at the end of the season. And at the end of the season, it's like December 18th. And December 18th in Chicago, any year is hard. And in 1932, was a Greek tragedy level hard, okay? It was horrible. They were planning to play at Wrigley Field, which is where they played back then. But they were planning to play in Wrigley Field. But the high that day was 20. And this been... Snow had been dumping on Chicago all week, so they played in a new place called the Chicago Stadium, um, which a week before had hosted the Salvation Army Circus. So it smelled like weak old animal dung. In fact, several of the players apparently vomited on the field because it smelled so absolutely horrible. Hey, I didn't make this stuff up. This is history, man. Point is, they had to change some of the rules to fit in the smaller venue. They had to do a bunch of different things. Bears still won 9-0 in part because of an arguably illegal forward pass by wacky fullback Bronco Nagurski. I love that name. Say it with me, Bronco Nagurski. Yeah, anyway. So Bronco Nagurski does an illegal forward pass, and all the officials went, um, sure. <laughs> and the Spartans are like, what? But anyway, so, so the Bears win, life is good, won the very first Playoff championship, and it's over. That's it. Except that the NFL officials couldn't help but notice a few things. Number one, there was a sports writer that's called it the most amazing game in the history of sports. You know, we actually have a championship. That might be what you call trying to sell newspapers. But the point is, 
is that's out there. And, and they looked and they went, wait a minute. Football fans paid through the nose for these tickets. 12,000 people packed this tiny venue, filled it to capacity, and came paying through the nose, walking through, I don't, I'm not even being hyperbolic, waist-deep snow to get there. They're like, wait, this is how much people want a playoff game? So the very next year, they split the NFL into two different divisions, and at the end of the season, those two different divisions would come and play a playoff game every year. And in 1966, when the NFL and the AFL decided to merge, they have an even bigger version of this of this special game that they began referring to as the Super Bowl. Now, why do I go into all this? First, well, it's history, and I'm a history nerd. It's football. I like it. I like football. It's the Bears. I love the Bears. And Christmas. Because I want you to think about this just for a second. We've been talking about, for the last month, miracle babies, right? We've been talking about, throughout Scripture, different times when people who realistically can't have children had children. And how that's been pointing to Jesus in different ways. And I want to talk about one more today. Just one more miracle baby before we get to Christmas. I want to talk about John the Baptist, who's a lot like that 1932 playoff game. 1932 playoff game was unprecedented. I mean, they'd had football games before. They'd had tiebreakers before. But they'd never had something like this. A sports writer says, most amazing game in the history of sports. There's never been anything like this before. Everybody's like, oh, this is exciting. I'll walk through waist-deep snow to see this. But compared to what comes next, compared to the Super Bowl, this was just a one-off exciting thing. Super Bowl was so much bigger, so much better. Didn't smell like animal dung. People aren't usually vomiting on the field. And yet people love that 1932 playoff game. But it was only pointing to something that took on a life of its own, a culture of its own that's so much bigger, so much richer, and so much more long-lasting than a single game. In this weird sort of way, I submit to you, John's a little bit like Jesus. John's a little bit like the 1932 playoff game. Do me a favor, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, and let's look at this. This is John's part of the Christmas story. A man about whom Jesus later said in Matthew, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. The most amazing game in the history of sports. Hopefully you're at Luke chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, Herod the Great, the half-breed king who ruled Judea for, uh, with Rome's backing for about 40 years, slaughtered all of his family, including his own wife, great guy. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Which means realistically, though, one thing this cannot be is a birth narrative, right? This can't be about a baby being born. Then again, that's what we argued about Isaac's birth, right? And that's what we said about Samson's birth and about Samuel's birth, all these different births. There's a bit of a precedent in Scripture for God giving miracle babies to people that realistically can't have babies if he's trying to do something big. 
Now, Dr. Luke started this whole gospel off by saying, I'm, I've investigated everything about the Messiah and his life. I'm going to tell you all the facts. I've laid it all out. Here's what it is, and I'm going to start from the beginning. Let me tell you about a baby that's being born. So, if you're a first century Bible-believing Jewish person reading about the birth of the Messiah, and you heard these verses, these are really good people. They're both from a priestly line, and they live it out well. God loves them. They love God. But unfortunately, they can't have children. Would you assume, well, obviously this cannot be a birth narrative about the birth of the Messiah. Or would you go, oh yeah, I know where this is going. Because I know about Isaac, and I know about Samson, and I know about Samuel. So, a man named the Lord remembers. Marries a woman named God's promise. They're both from the priestly line, they're both godly people. Totally going to be the Messiah. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, because there were 24 priestly divisions and they all kind of divvied up, serving at the temple at different times, uh, like for one week, twice a year, kind of like <laughs> the National Guard. And once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense, which is this amazing honor. There's like eight, 9,000 priests floating around. What are the chances that of all those priests who only get to serve a few times a year, it would ever be your turn to do this. This is a huge deal. Most priests might only get one chance, if that, to do this. So there's this, think about the temple. There's this outer gallery where Gentiles and women are allowed to worship. There's an inner gallery where all the righteous Jewish men are allowed to worship. There's a holy place where you burned incense at the altar, and it's right next to the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. So incense burners, you rarely get a chance to go here. You're going to drink this in. This is the closest you're ever going to get to God because God is literally just on the other side of that curtain, which is exciting, right? Is that exciting or is that scary? It's a little bit of both, you know. It's exciting and scary. It's like shooting a machine gun. You go, exciting, a little scary. You know, it's like you should have a healthy respect for the power that you're dealing with, but it, the idea is um, not that God only dwells in the Holy of Holies. It's not like they thought he was in a, in a box, but rather that he dwells intensely, fully, richly, powerfully at that place. So just on the other side of this curtain is this seething power of God. It's exciting as a priest, and yet you go, I don't want that to leak out. I don't want to accidentally go in there. I remember we've talked about before that, at least traditionally, they would tie a rope around a high priest's ankle when he would go into the Holy of Holies just in case he got flash fried. Nobody else has to go in and get him. You just drag the body out. That's what they're thinking when they think about this sort of thing. He's right outside of that. The people who knew God, who loved God, who understood God, were drawn to the Holy of Holies and terrified of the Holy of Holies. This time of year, we love singing songs about Emmanuel. God is walking right with us in everything we're doing. The seething power of God is literally right next to you. Now, nothing wrong with singing that with a big smile on your face. That's cool. But if you're singing that with a big smile on your face, one of two things is probably happening. Number one, you're in a good relationship with God. 
You love being in the presence of God and his holiness and his righteousness because you're in a right relationship with him. Or number two, you haven't got a clue what righteousness and holiness really are because you're standing there playing with a loaded machine gun. So when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside in their galleries while Zechariah was all alone, like in a horror movie. There an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense, suddenly, while Zechariah was alone, like in a horror movie, right? And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Why? Because angels are scary. Yeah. I mean, if you suddenly saw an angel appear right next to you, but I don't care if you just look like a shiny guy. Suddenly there's a guy standing there where there wasn't anything before. That's going to surprise you, I think. I think that would be surprising. This is powerful, huge. Nobody's been there before. It's a natural human reaction to being surrounded by something, to be thrust in the presence of something so powerful, so alien. So even though angels are usually messengers of something good, it's still a little scary. The angel said to him, what do angels always have to say to start? Don't be afraid. Because they're rarely, their presence is rarely calming. People are like, ah, I want an angel to calm me. I'm like, "Mm." if the angel comes, he's going to have to calm you. Because you're going to be terrified. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Take a deep breath. Don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You are to give him the name John. When did Zechariah pray for a son? Apparently he prayed. We're not told when. When do you think? Yeah, it probably wasn't that morning. Was it? Well, I'm 60, I'm 80, I'm 90. My wife is not able to bear children, so God, if you could give us a child, I'm like, what? Probably wasn't that morning. It's probably years ago. So God has been dropping the ball for years, right? He has not been answering the prayer like he should have done for years, correct? Yes? No? Does it ever feel like that if God doesn't answer a prayer in the timing that you would expect? Does it ever feel like God? is maybe not answering prayers, right? But God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something that is impossible for the Lord remembers in God's promise. God isn't slow in answering prayers. He knew exactly when the situation, when the timing was right to answer Zechariah's prayer, to use that prayer to pave the way for his own son. Kind of like God knew the timing with Sarah or with Manoah's wife or with Hannah. He knew what and when they needed what they needed. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to give him the name Yohanan. The Lord remembers, is remembered by the Lord and is promised by God that God's promise will have a son named the Lord has been gracious. If this, if this is just a heartwarming fable, then that should make you kind of misty like a Hallmark Christmas movie. But if this is honest to goodness history, that should change you, shouldn't it? 
It should change how you look at prayer, that you look at God's promises to your prayer. Do you trust him? Do you? Even when it doesn't seem like he is answering your prayer. I prayed that 40 years ago. And you're answering my prayer now, and God's like, exactly when I needed to, yes. That's exactly right. You didn't need a son before. You need a miracle son. Because in a few months, Elizabeth's cousin is going to have a miracle child. Hebrews tells us, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And it's not irrational. I believe in New York City. I've never seen it. But I have no rational reason to believe that everybody that's told me about it has been lying. All those movies set in there have been lying. Maps have been lying. Cartographers have been lying for years. By faith, I believe in something I haven't seen because the people that are telling me this are trustworthy. Is that irrational? Come, walk on water, Peter, like I'm currently doing. Is it irrational to step out? It might not be the most rational seeming to assume that you can do it, but to watch and believe that you can do it? Why not? Today we tend to look at, at things and see what we can see. Maybe only see only what we can see. We look for simple answers. We look for quick and easy solutions to complex things that God already knows the answers to. Maybe the wise man seeks God first and then stops to listen and trusts in what God leads him to do because the Lord remembers his promises and he graciously fulfills them and that's what these names mean. Don't get lost in only seeing what you can see. Well, your wife, God's promise, will bear you a son and you are to give him the name the Lord has been gracious. And he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he is never to take wine or other fermented drink. Right, that's like Samson, right? Oh, and like Samuel, right? It's kind of a little bit of a miracle baby thing. It's almost like John's the ultimate miracle baby this stuff has been leading up to. And he's going to be holy even from the womb. This guy is going to be like Samson, but without the wrongness of life. And Samson was a superhero, right? He was just an extremely flawed superhero. This is what Samson should have been. This is going to be cool. John is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Hey, you remember when Samson was filled with the Holy Spirit? And that's where his superpowers came from? You know, ripping gates off their hinges and tearing lions apart with his bare hands because of the Holy Spirit. John's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. You go, oh. John is what Samson should have been. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. This is the Messiah. Right? Does he tick all the boxes? Most amazing game in the history of sports. Many of the people of Israel will, be, will, bring, will be bring back to the Lord their God, like the Messiah is going to do. Actually, just as many, actually, he may point them back, he may bring them back, but 
He's not here to save the world, but he is here to point people to the guy who is here to save the world. We can go, wow, this is the Messiah. And you go, no, this is just his herald. This is just the guy pointing us to the guy. Already, everything we've heard about this guy, you go, this is amazing. And you go, this guy ain't nothing compared to the Super Bowl. Nothing. He's going to go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. In fact, we're told he even looks and acts a lot like Elijah. You go, oh, so this is Elijah as he should have been, right? Samson as he should have been. Elijah as he should have been. A priest like Samuel. He's everybody that should have been. This is the way he is. The greatest man who was ever born. The Messiah? No, he's nothing compared to the Messiah. He's going to go in the spirit and the power of Elijah. That's the powerful guy. That's the that's the calling fireballs down from heavenly guy. That's the potent prophet. The opera singer of the Old Testament, right? To turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Because he's not the Lord, but the Lord is coming. He's just the guy saying, check this out. All this awesomeness isn't for the Messiah. And if this guy is this cool, among those born of women has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, better than everyone else who's lived since Eden. What does that say? Because John says later of Jesus, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And Jesus, who did not flaunt anything, didn't correct him. She won that. Dr. Luke says, how cool is that? The angel quotes from the very last words of the Old Testament, the very last words that anybody had heard from God before there was silence. In Malachi chapter 4, we're told, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. Silence for centuries. This is the last thing you heard from God. This now is the next thing you hear from God. And you hear it as you're standing next to the Holy of Holies, greatest man who ever lived. You're not getting excited about the concept of, and he's not the guy I'm supposed to be excited about. No, no. How exciting is Christ and his birth? Zechariah said, how can I be sure of this? Which is an unfortunate question because he's not saying how this is possible. He says, how can I trust this? How can I be sure of this? This isn't Mary going, um, what? How does that work? This is him going, yeah, how do I buy that? This is a, Mary's like, I, this is a lack of health class understanding of how this is going to work. Zechariah is like, this is a lack of faith. How, how can I even be certain of this, Mr. Guy who just teleported in front of me? How can I be certain of this? I mean, I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. And the angel answered, I am Gabriel. I love this little exchange. I love this. Zechariah goes, I'm an old man. The angel goes, but I am Gabriel. You're an old man. Okay. I'm the angel who spoke to David, to Daniel, to all these people. This makes all the difference. You're Zechariah, and you're thinking like Zechariah. I'm Gabriel. I am the warrior of God. 
And I'm thinking like God thinks. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I'm telling you, this is what will happen. I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news, this gospel. And I would think that would have been enough for you. Okay, so now you're going to be silent. You're not able to speak until the day all this happens because you didn't believe my words, which come true at their proper time. I spoke to you, you didn't have faith. So you don't get to speak anymore. How about that? I can't help but think of Abram and Sarah. You know, it's like, <laughs> I heard this and I didn't believe it, so I laughed. Go, okay, then we're naming him laughter. What? So she can always remember how much of a doofus you were. Okay, you're going to have a son. Yeah, I don't know if I buy that. Okay, then for the next nine months, you can't speak. Yeah, I think you'll remember how much of a doofus you are. Don't you think so, Zechariah? Answer me. Oh, you can't. Call the baby, we laughed at God. Call the baby, the Lord has been gracious. Meanwhile, because all this is going on, uh, all the normal world kept turning in the other outer galleries. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah going, where is he? He just went into lights and things and he didn't come. Oh, dude, should we have roped that guy? I mean, what, what, are you, what are you thinking? He's just not coming out. Where is he? And when he came out, he couldn't speak, just like Gabriel had said. And they realized he'd seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. And even the lay people said, ah, something happened to Zechariah. And when his time of service had completed, because he kept doing, I love it, he kept having to work. He went to work every day for the rest of the week, going, every time he go in there to light incense, he's like, oh, that's right. But excited! but chagrined. But after a time the service was completed, he returned home, and after this, his wife became pregnant. And let's cheat ahead, because John was born to pave the way for Jesus Christ, right? So Jesus, Yeshua, that name means the Lord saves. So the Lord remembered, the Lord remembers, and God kept his promise to God's promise and showed grace by miraculously giving them the Lord has been gracious. And then he says, the Lord saves. The Lord being gracious predicates the Lord's salvation. So if we can believe that the Lord remembers, and that God keeps his promises, and the Lord is gracious because we literally see it in the story, when he says, and the Lord saves, what should our reaction be? Shouldn't we just naturally say, yep, absolutely, yep. And shouldn't that change us? If we say, no, wait a minute, do I actually believe that the Lord's salvation comes because it's been paved by the Lord's graciousness? Is that what I think salvation is about? Because the Lord remembers and God keeps his promises and he's gracious can I put those together? After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant for five months, remained in seclusion. Now, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin this time. And that's the context of, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, of a miracle baby. And that's where we'll pick this up on Saturday night. But in the meantime, 
Think about what happens three decades later in Matthew chapter 3, if you want to go there. But in Matthew chapter 3, in those days, three decades later, John the Baptist came preaching the desert of Judea and saying, repent, turn around, do a 180, change your life, change how you have been living, change what you set your eyes upon, change where you move your feet, change, for the kingdom of heaven is near, which would have been a big deal because, again, hundreds of years since they've heard a real prophet Israel just assumed that God had abandoned them and they were primed to listen. So this prophet guy comes whose birth was like Samson, who lives like Elijah, who looks like Elijah, and says, finally, the kingdom of heaven is near. And this is the one who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. This is the messenger going ahead of the Messiah. And John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Again, Elijah, finally. Every year at Passover, they set out a plate for Elijah, right? Every year, they're reminded that Elijah, we're told at the end of of the Old Testament, Elijah's coming. God will send somebody in the spirit of Elijah, maybe even Elijah. So we set out a plate for Elijah. Every year, they remember at Passover, Elijah, Elijah might come now. A guy comes and goes, I look and I sound like Elijah. Kingdom is at hand and the Messiah is coming. They're like, you have my attention. Every year I pray for this and it finally happens. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan and confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Jews had been doing baptisms for centuries, but not quite like this. It was always the last part of a Gentile becoming a Jew, the last part of a priest or a, a layman becoming a priest. It's always, it's always saying what went before in my life, I leave at the bottom of the pool and I come up something new. That's the whole point. It's not just ritual washing. It's saying I move away from that and I become something new. And he says, now I want you to baptize for repentance, for remission of sins. And you go, So what am I leaving at the bottom of the pool? My Gentileness? My secularness? Your sinfulness? How? Good question. Because nobody ever got saved by John the Baptist. It's not like he could take away sins. But he's like, wouldn't you want to? If there was a way that you could leave all that crud at the bottom of this pool and come up something fresh and clean and new. Don't you want that? to turn away from everything else and say, that is not who I am anymore. And I come up something new. Don't you want that? They say, yes! He's like, then let me point you to the guy who can make that happen. I baptize you with water for repentance so that you can turn around. You can say, I'd like to let this go. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not even fit to carry. I'm the lowliest servant compared to this guy. The most amazing game in the history of sports is nothing compared to this guy. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. All I can do is immerse you in water. He's going to immerse you in God himself. And you're going to come up changed. And then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And that ain't a coincidence. And I love that John 1.29 says... John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. That greatest man who ever lived. The superhero that Samson was supposed to be. The prophet that Elijah was supposed to be. The greatest game in the history of sports goes, now. It all comes down to now and him. It just gives me goosebumps to think about that moment. It gives me goosebumps. So when we think about Christmas, I can't help but think about Isaac. I can't help but think about Samson. I can't help but think about Samuel. I can't help but think about John going, everything's been pointing to the birth of Christ. Everything's been pointing to the one guy who does all of this right. The one guy that all of creation has been leading up to, the one guy that all of creation has been yearning for, even the rocks and trees have been excited and been yearning for this. Can we be at least as aware as they are? Because if you guys had a glimmer of what I'm looking at. Remember Bronco Nagurski? Guy who threw the, the pass that won the very first NFL championship that was nothing compared to the Super Bowl. Kind of like John's pointing to Jesus, who's so much greater than he. Bronco Nagurski Jr. was born on Christmas Day. Yeah, that's just ironic. But it's nowhere near as amazing as who else was born on Christmas Day. Who can we share with about that? Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for the awesome privilege it is to know something so much more important than football, so much more important than our daily grind, so much more important than John, so much more important. Thank you for letting us know things that are just life-changing. Father, remind us that if we ever praise you for the path, if we ever praise you for the light that shows us the path, if we ever praise you for the salvation the path is leading us to, I pray, Lord, remind us that those around us can't see the path, may not have been aware of the light, may not even be aware of the salvation. Lord, help us to have pretty feet as we reach out with your light to them. Show them your path. Not our path, your path. And I pray, Lord, that you remind us this week as we lead up to celebrating your birth that it's a wonderful time to tell people why we're celebrating. In Jesus' most holy name, amen.